Would you open your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 14? We'll be reading from verse 1 to verse 23. As you open your Bibles there, uh, if you don't have a Bible, by the way, if you don't have a Bible, uh, we'd love for you to grab one of the pew Bibles and take it home with you. We'd love for you to have it and read it. But as you turn your Bible there, um, and you may find it on page number 948, I want to remind you that this is the third uh, sermon in a three-part uh, series, topical series, on relating to one another in the body of Christ. How does Scripture call us to relate to each other? Uh, this morning, we are uh, encouraged to consider how to walk uh, with a trained conscience. We have looked at the theme of walking in wisdom. Uh, we have looked at the theme of walking in love. Uh, and we want to look this morning at the theme of walking with a trained conscience. Here is the Word of God, Romans chapter 14, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of good, I'm sorry, for the sake of food, do not destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you join me in asking God in prayer to bless the proclamation of his word in our hearts? Let's pray. 
Father, as we are looking at the theme of conscience, would you speak to our hearts from your word? Would you help us understand what you have revealed and help us receive it with meekness? Father, we pray that Christ would be exalted this morning through the proclamation of this word. I pray that you would strengthen me to, to preach it clearly uh, for the glory of Christ and for the edification of your people. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The theme of conscience. Uh, the theme of conscience is rarely talked about or considered. Yet the conscience plays a key role for the believer and for the church. It plays a key role because, on one side, understanding the conscience and understanding the role of the conscience helps us in the process of sanctification, helps us to understand how to grow in our walks with Christ. But it also helps in building unity and in expressing love in the body of Christ. Uh, the role of the conscience uh, in our faithful obedience to Christ might be more apparent to you. You may understand how conscience works for the process of sanctification. But have you considered that the conscience is also an important part for building up unity, for, for being able to relate well to each other in the body of Christ. Now, if you've never considered how conscience plays a key role in building up unity and expressing love to other believers, then Romans 14 is the text that deals with this point and drives it home. Uh, chapter 14 of Romans um, starts off with a command to welcome the weaker brother and not to quarrel with him over opinions. Now, have you noticed how easy it is for even for Christians to move from simply having a different opinion to beginning to have tensions and to begin having arguments and begin having quarrelings. John Calvin, the great reformer, once said, man's disposition is to slide from a difference in opinion to quarrels and contentions. How true that is. It's so easy for us to slide and drift from differences of opinion to, to arguments and contentions. I wonder if you notice this tendency in you. It's easy for us to fall in this trap when we try to apply the Bible to a sort of a host of life issues. And Paul commands believers at the beginning of this chapter to protect themselves from falling into quarreling. But, but Romans 14 is more than just a command, stop quarreling. Romans 14 is clarifying to us how the conscience works so that a good use of our conscience, an appropriate understanding of the conscience, can help us stay away from quarreling. The aim of Romans 14 is to instruct believers how to use their conscience so that not to fall into quarreling over opinions. Uh, we must understand how conscience is supposed to work so that we can relate to one another in welcoming ways, in ways that build each other up. It's as if Paul is saying, do you want to grow in welcoming others in your midst and not start quarreling, especially with those who are different than you? If so, listen to what I have to say in Romans 14. Our time together in, uh, in this in this message, uh, will be divided in three points. What is the conscience? Signs and effects of misunderstanding the conscience. Signs and effects of misunderstanding the conscience. And then how to train the conscience. How to train the conscience. What it is, 
How do you know that you're misusing it or misunderstanding it and the effects of that, and then how to train it? What is a conscience? Well, notice in verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, As for one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Now, it may be helpful here for us to clarify what does it mean to be weak in faith. Faith here is not talking about faith in God or faith in Christ or faith in the salvation that we receive from God through Jesus Christ. The word weak in faith in this particular context is referring to people who are weaker in their ability to trust that certain things are okay for them to do. You say, how do we know that? How do we know that's what it means here? Well, because verse 2 tells us. Verse 2 says, one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Now, those of you who are on diet and uh, are not eating meats, uh, you might think you fall in this category, but don't, that's not the case necessarily. Just because you are only eating vegetables doesn't mean you are weak in faith. So you don't need to worry about that. However, put yourself in first century uh, Rome, where the church in Rome was mixed between, or was made up of Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. And for the Jewish Christians, those who, those who trusted in Jesus uh, to be saved, um, even though they trusted in Christ to be saved, whether it was because of their upbringing or certain understandings they still had about the Mosaic law, they were unable to, to let go of eating meats. Even though they believed in Jesus fully, yet their conscience was still not able to disassociate the eating of certain meats with uncleanness, which was talked about in the Mosaic law in the Old Testament. So those who are not able to, to believe that they're free to eat of the meats without being unclean, they were in this category of having a weak faith. It's not that their faith was shaky. It's that they were not able to trust that eating meats was okay for them to do. They had a conviction over what was right and unright. And that conviction was different than what other believers in the church in Rome had. And Paul describes them as weak in faith because their, their ability to trust in something, in whether or not to eat foods that were with meat, if that was okay for them to do. Now, this exemplifies the role of the conscience. The weak brother and the stronger brother in this context of Romans 14 shows the difference between people who have different degrees of consciences. And the conscience, uh, here, let's define it, is that part of our minds where we make judgments about what is right and wrong. The conscience is that faculty inside our mind where we make judgments about what is right and wrong. Now, people, people have a conscience even before becoming a Christian. We, we have standards that we learn, whether it's from society or from, uh, from Hollywood, from books we read, from people that influence us. We develop a standard of, of, of what we think is right or wrong. Now, before we become a Christian, our conscience is stained by sin, is corrupted. As we heard in the book of Hebrews, in the beginning of the service, Christ, when he dies for us, his blood cleanses us from an evil conscience. We have a conscience even before we're Christians. But the conscience is corrupted by our sinful nature. The conscience is, is corrupted and stained, stained by corrupt standards around us. Hearing the Word of God, when we hear of God's moral law, of God's decree of what is right and wrong, can awaken us by the Spirit of God 
to recognize that no matter how good we thought we were, or tried to be, when we're compared to the law of God, none of us is right. All our actions, even the best ones we thought we have done, are like a filthy rag because our hearts are stained, are corrupted. Our motivations are self-centered. Even the good things we want to do can be so tainted by selfishness, self-centeredness, by desire to acquire fame or reputation through what we do, by desire to use people rather than truly serve them. And hearing the Word of God puts us face to face with a different standard. And our conscience all of a sudden could begin troubling us in a new way. When we come to recognize that we are not right with God and our actions, no matter how good they may appear to be, can never be fully right before a holy God, we come to recognize and realize how how terribly we have failed and how miserable our condition is. We come to realize that we have rebelled against God and our conscience begins bothering us. But it doesn't stop there. In the, in the Word of God, we also hear that Christ died for sinners. Sinners like us. So that all those who turn to Christ in faith and repentance, they are actually renewed by the Spirit of God. God begins to, to work in our hearts. We believe that the blood of Jesus has been shed for all those who, who turn to Christ and He cleanses us. He cleanses our conscience. And all of a sudden, the, the corrupt, guilty conscience that was weighed by, by guiltiness is now cleansed and we received a, a clean conscience before God. We are made right in His sight, not because of anything that we do, but merely because we put our trust in the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. And now it's as if that cleansing, His perfection becomes ours as well. It affects our conscience. The Holy Spirit applies the benefit of Christ's death and resurrection to our hearts through faith in Jesus Christ. After we become Christians... And by the way, let me just pause there. If, if there's anyone here this morning who you think you, you're not sure if you have become a Christian, you're not sure if you're a Christian, let me, just, let me just encourage you. Trusting in Christ for the cleansing of your sin and for the cleansing of your conscience is the best thing you can ever do. I want to plead with you to do it today. On this Father's Day, no amount of good you do, no amount of perfect things, perfect behavior can cleanse our conscience from the evil of what we have done. But the blood of Jesus can. So if you've not experienced that cleansing that comes through the blood of Christ, I want to plead with you today. Turn to Christ. And if you'd like to know what that means, we would love to talk to you after the service. Come and talk to one of the pastors or, or talk to someone who's here in this congregation. After we become Christians, the conscience, it's, it awakens in some amazing ways. And all of a sudden, it starts bringing up things that used not to bother us in the past. And all of a sudden, it starts bothering us again or bothering us in new and fresh ways. I was talking this week with, with a brother here in this congregation about how after you become a Christian, you actually start to be more convicted by sin than before you became a Christian. Why is that the case? Because the conscience being cleansed by the Holy Spirit, renewed, is now beginning to operate. It's now beginning to work and, and send red flags, red lights go off, alarms go off. The conscience is renewed by the Holy Spirit as we expose ourselves to the Word of God. So our conscience is a faculty inside of us that helps us judge what is right and wrong. That sense of what is right and wrong is not the same for every Christian. And this is the part that we must understand. That sense of what is right and wrong is not the same for every Christian. And this is what's going on in verse 2 of Romans 14. One person believes 
it is right for him to eat meats. Another person believes that it is not right for him to eat meats. Which one is right? Which is the view of the Bible? Interestingly, Paul's first interest in this chapter is not to clarify who's right and wrong. He actually spends the first half of the chapter not telling us who's right and who's wrong. He's, tell, he's spending the first half of the chapter grieved that in the midst of those disagreements, which is right, which is wrong, they were responding sinfully to each other. And that is wrong for both of them. Do you see what's going on here? Romans 14 stands in Scripture as one of the major texts that highlights the importance of understanding how our conscience works in order to foster kind and loving relationships among believers who have differences of opinion. So weakness in faith in this verse refers to weakness of confidence to do a particular activity and still feel right about it. Does your belief system give you freedom or clearance to engage in a particular activity? You think about whatever that activity may be, and say if, if the conscience, your belief system says, no, I don't think I have the freedom to do that, then in that area, you are exercising a weak faith. That's nothing to, be, to feel bad about. You just don't have the freedom of conscience to act in, in that particular way. Here's how one of the Greek dictionaries defines the word for conscience. The conscience is that inward faculty that distinguishes right and wrong. For the believer, conscience is the mental organ in men through which God brings His Word to bear on them. But even, even when we bring the Word of God to bear on various issues, we may end up having differences on how we interpret. And even when we try to look at God's Word carefully to, so what it, to see what it says, we may still end up with a wrong conclusion, or not wrong, with a, with a different conclusion of how those things apply. It may help us to understand what the conscience is by differentiating between a seared conscience and a weak conscience. Scripture speaks that our consciences can be weak. Scripture also says that the conscience can be seared. When the conscience is seared, it is a big, big problem. When the conscience is weak, that is not necessarily a problem. So listen to how Pastor John MacArthur differentiates between a seared conscience and a weak conscience. Having a weak conscience is nothing to be embarrassed about. Having a seared conscience, you, you better watch out. That's dangerous. Listen to the following description or difference. A weak conscience is not the same as a seared conscience. A seared conscience becomes inactive, silent, rarely accusing, insensitive to sin. But the weakened conscience usually is hypersensitive and overreactive about issues that are no sins. Ironically, a weak conscience is more likely to accuse than a strong conscience. Scripture calls this a weak conscience because it is too easily wounded. People with a weak conscience tend to fret about things that should provoke no guilt in a mature Christian who knows God's truth. So if you have a seared conscience, that's something to be significantly worried about. If you have a weak conscience, it, you should continue to grow in understanding God's Word, but it's not like something you need to be ashamed about or somehow think like you're in deep trouble. Uh, all of us, all of us have a little bit of both. Strong consciences in some areas and, and weak consciences in others. We are a mixture of things. We should not put ourselves on a spectrum, I'm more of a weak Christian or a strong Christian. We actually are more of a mixed bag. Various issues, various areas, various positions in our lives, convictions, we're going to be on one side of the spectrum than, than the other. The tension that was building up in the Church of Rome, particularly, were that Christians were arriving at different conclusions about how to eat 
or what to eat, and also about how to think about days. Were some days, like the Sabbath, different than the other days of the week? Or were all days equal? Well, let's look at ways in which we misunderstand or misuse the conscience. If, if the conscience is that faculty in us that helps us make judgments about what is right and wrong, let's look at ways we can misuse um, and, or effects of misunderstanding uh, our conscience. There's, there's five effects in this passage, uh, five subpoints about how we can misuse uh, or misunderstand the conscience. First of all, the presence, the first sign of misunderstanding the conscience in relationships is the presence of quarrelings. The presence of quarrelings, of fights. Now, there are various reasons, various reasons why Christians can fight or might fight with one another. We're not supposed to, but it often happens. F several reasons. One, like we've seen earlier, James 3 tells us that we can fight because we are actually guided by an earthly wisdom as opposed to a heavenly wisdom. We can fight with others and get into arguments because we may be driven by selfish ambitions inside of us. James 4 speaks about that. We can get into arguments with others and, and quarrelings because of a lack of love, like 1 Corinthians 13. But it's also possible that part of the reason why we get into arguments and tensions with each other is because we misunderstand the role of the conscience. We can impose our conscience on others and hold others to the same exact pattern of truth as we hold in our conscience. And we assume that our version of, the, of what we understand the, the law of God to be, what our conscience says, must be the absolute word of God. And when we impose that on others, and others do the same to us, guess what happens? Arguments. Quarrelings. The second and third sign, sign two and three, for a misuse or misunderstanding of conscience is when there's despising and when there's passing judgments. We see this throughout this chapter, particularly the first half of the chapter. Despising others or passing judgment on others. The people who are eating meats were despising the ones who didn't. They felt they were too weak to handle it. They thought they were misinformed in their Bible knowledge. They were perhaps laughing or belittling, whether verbally or silently in their own hearts. Have you ever done that? Thinking that someone's just too weak? They, don't, they just don't know enough. They just haven't read all their sources you've read. It's easy to belittle someone else just because they don't have the same level of freedom or same level of conviction on some issues. But others, they were falling the path, in, the, in the trap of, of passing judgment on others. The people who were abstaining from eating meats were passing judgments on those who are not abstaining. They thought, these guys are liberals. They don't know that they're not supposed to eat this stuff. They haven't read the Old Testament. They don't know what God says in the book of Moses. So it's easy for the, the more, if you will, conservative in the church in Rome to, say, to speak about, the more who, for the, about those who seem to be more on the liberal side to say, Look at them. They totally miss it. And Paul says in verse 3, let, not, let the one who eats, I'm sorry, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Did you, did you hear that? God has welcomed the other. And Paul speaks in these verses often about the danger of despising each other or passing judgment on others for non-sin issues. So if you find yourself in a, with an attitude of despising or passing judgment on other Christians for holding on to something that you don't hold, 
that, that is not a sin issue, and yet you might think it's a sin issue, but Scripture is not clear about it, it's possible that you are misunderstanding how conscience works. Now, a clarification. The prohibition against judging each other requires some nuancing. There's other passages in the Bible where we, we are encouraged and commanded as a church to judge each other. 1 Corinthians 5 is one of those passages. When sin is indeed among us, and um, a matter of dispute is really a sin issue as Scripture defines it, we're actually commanded to judge each other if we don't turn away from sin. But if the matter at hand is not a sin issue, as defined in, in all of Scripture together, then the issue may be a, what's called a, an, it's a non-issue, and yet someone may consider it to be an issue. So we're going to be clear for, careful that we don't say no passing of judgment without any qualification. We can pass judgment against others in a wrong way. There are times when we have to pass judgment, and there are times when we should not pass judgment. And when it's an issue of conscience, it, we should not pass judgment over each other. Be cautious of not making others obey the rules of your conscience and allow them the freedom to act on their conscience. Andy Nazelli, in the excellent book that we're reading this summer uh, on the conscience, makes this wonderful little insight. As a general rule, be strict with yourself and generous with others. Be strict with yourself and generous with others. Sadly, however, most of us are tempted to be strict with others and generous with ourselves. And it should be the other way around. Uh, now, surprisingly, the camp that gets most attention in the first half of the chapter is the camp who was not eating the meats, and they were despising. I'm sorry, uh, the ones who were uh, eating the meats, and they were um, judging. I'm making it wrong. The camp who got most attention is a camp that was not eating the meats, they were falling the trap of luring, of the lure of self, of, of passing judgment on those who had the freedom to eat meats. Paul asks them two questions. Verse 4, who are you to pass judgment? So these are the, the weaker brothers who are passing judgment on the stronger brothers. Who are you to pass judgment on the servants of another? And the second question, why do you pass judgment on your brother or why do you despise your brother? To each of these questions, Paul applies medicine to stop the judgment and the despising. And the medicine he applies to them is, recognize you're not the Lord. Who are you to pass judgment on your servant? You're not, you're not your brother's master. You're not the one to whom they must give an account. And Paul here speaks and says, to this end, verse 9, to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. He died that he might be Lord, not us. The one who is Lord over us is not ourselves. We are not lording over other people. And the, the second medicine he gives is recognizing that we will stand before the throne of God to give an account for everything we do. Before the courtroom of God, each of us will be judged. We do not need to pass judgment on others because the Lord will do that when the day comes. If you struggle to control your thoughts or words in being critical towards others, in passing judgment on others, have you considered that the remembrance of God's coming judgment can help you let go of your critical spirit? Just remember, you are not the Lord and the day of judgment will come. Let those two medicines help you break down your critical spirit over others. You're not the Lord to be the master of others, and you're not the Lord to be the ultimate judge of others. If verses 3 to, 15, to 13, the first half, uh, exposed the way the weak Christians were sinning against those who were strong by, by passing judgment on them, in verses 14 through 23, Paul exposes how the strong were sinning against the weak. 
four, sign four and five that we're misusing the conscience or misunderstanding the conscience is that we can put a stumbling block before others and we can cause others to be destroyed. Stumbling block and destruction. Other signs, the, the, the remaining signs that we are misusing our conscience and the effects of it. The believers with a stronger conscience who thought they have more freedoms than the believers with a weaker conscience, they can put a stumbling block for the weak believers. Look at verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. And the alternative to putting a stumbling block is presented to us in verse 15. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Verse 19, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for the mutual upbuilding. Instead of being a stumbling block, be an agent that God uses to build others up. Part of protecting against causing others to stumble is to keep our convictions and our freedoms closely to ourselves. We should be cautious of not flaunting our freedoms to others in reckless ways, thus creating a pressure or causing others to feel embarrassed or to feel ashamed, um, and thus to act against their consciences because of our example. Paul instructs believers in verse 21 and 22, he says, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between you and the God. Friends, there are, some, there, there are certain convictions that you just need to keep to yourself. How you think about issues, why you think about certain things, just keep to yourself. If you bring them up, it just brings up a host of disagreements, and not just disagreements, but ways that cause you to make, get other people to stumble in their conscience, to begin acting like you even though their conscience bothers them because they have not yet figured out how to train their conscience on a particular issue. So a healthy use of the conscience knows how to relate to other believers by helping them live consistently according to their conscience, not yours. That's how you, don't, that's how you stay away from becoming a stumbling block. You help others work through their convictions and let them and encourage them to act according to their conscience, not according to your conscience. When efforts have been made to try to calibrate someone's conscience with the Word of God, if differences still exist and are of a nature that tempts someone to act against their conscience, it is wise for that person to consider going to another church. If you try to talk to somebody about a particular conviction that they hold and they still think it's a sin issue, but after working through Scripture and say, I don't think it's a sin issue, let's look why you might think that. If we examine the Scripture, Scripture could be very clear, this issue is not a sin issue, but you still hold on to it as a sin issue. Well, can you just live and not acting that out? You should follow your conscience. But if it's a matter, if it's an issue that really we do together as a church and a person still has a hard time with it and believes that what we might do as a church is a sin, then for the sake of protecting that person's conscience, it is wise for that person to go to a place where they're not encouraged to sin. Let me give you an example. If you had a Presbyterian friend, Presbyterian believers hold on, are convinced from Scripture that infants should be baptized. We who are Baptists, we understand from Scripture that Scripture is incredibly clear that only those who identify themselves with Christ by faith should be baptized. That baptism is a sign of being identified with Jesus. It's a sign of being united to Christ. So because of that, we think that babies should not be baptized. Now, Presbyterian brothers and sisters may feel or think that we Baptists would be in sin for not baptizing infants. We Baptists might think 
or not that I think thing, for sure, that Presbyterians are in sin for administering baptism to those who have not yet been united to Christ. We could not be worshiping together in the same church in the same way because our consciences are so different on this issue. And we have to agree to wait until the day of judgment to let the Lord sort it out. But it just may be difficult for us to be part of the same local church together. So as a, in a desire not to make one of the other act sinfully, it might be wise to say you should be in a place where what you consider to be sin is not publicly practiced every week. That is a loving thing to do, to help the other brother live according to his conscience. And this is one of the reasons why we have different denominations. It is not a bad thing to have different denominations. It means that we give the freedom to each other to worship the Lord within those realms of differences of, of, of consciences. And we can do so and wait for the day to sort it out uh, on the final day of judgment. Do you see how protecting the conscience of another brother or sister is a loving thing to do? What we don't want them to do is to become into this place of, of stumbling, of acting against their conscience because they feel pressured by us or they feel ashamed if they don't do so or they just see our example over and over again and they don't work through the, the issues, they just begin acting against their conscience. And when that happens, a, another sign takes place. Destruction. Destruction. It's not that we destroy physically the other person, but we contribute to their destruction because when any of us act against our conscience, we're actually weakening the, the means the Lord uses to, to, to throw those alarm bells in our minds that something is wrong. And when we act consistently against our conscience, it is a process of silencing our conscience. It is a process that leads to the searing of the conscience. It's a process of destruction. And the Lord says, do not destroy your brother and sister for whom the Lord has died. When you are negligent about their conscience and either flippantly laugh about their conviction or, or, or put pressure or shame them or just don't think about how they might be using their convictions over an issue, you're causing them to get to a place where they could actually respond sinfully in a path that leads to their destruction. So signs that we can misunderstand the conscience, that we are misusing the conscience, quarrels, fights, despising, passing judgment, being a stumbling block, and fifth, destruction. These are realities that can happen when Christians don't understand the use of, of the conscience. And finally, how do you train your conscience? Let me, let me close with five very quick ways how to train the conscience. There's so much more we could say about this. And by the way, I just want to encourage you to consider reading the book um, from Andy Nazelli um, on the conscience. It's a wonderful resource. If you haven't picked it up yet, I encourage you to do so. Five ways that we must train our conscience. Number one, our minds or conscience must be fully convinced. This comes from verse 5 in Romans 14. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. But fully convinced here, I need, we need to make a caveat. Being fully convinced in our minds does not mean that we are the absolute lawgiver. Our conscience is not a lawgiver. The law, the standard, comes from the Lord, ultimately. Our conscience is not the source of truth. Uh, the Puritan pastor, Richard Baxter, said, well, conscience is appointed only to discern the law of God and call upon us to observe it. And an erring conscience is not to be obeyed, but to be better informed. So you've got to be fully convinced from God's word what is right and wrong. The, the great reformer, Martin Luther, was called by the Church of Rome to deny the principles uh, of faith in Christ alone for salvation. 
And he was called to deny that principle and a host of, of other claims that he has made, which attacked the practices of the Church of Rome. And Luther, at the Diet of Worms, concluded his speech with the following words, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. There's nothing else I can do. God help me. Amen. We must be able to train our conscience to be fully convinced by the word of God and for our conscience to be captive to the word of God. A second way to train our conscience is to live every aspect of our life to the honor of God. Live every aspect of our lives to the honor of God. In verse 6, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to the Lord. Whether you have one conviction or another, the big question is, are you doing it as a means of honoring the Lord? Or are you doing it as a means of pleasing yourself? That's a big question. Train your conscience so that everything you do, you do for the honor of the Lord. A third way to train your conscience, to recognize and remember that our life and death belongs to the Lord. Recognize and remember that our life and death belongs to the Lord. That's why the Heidelberg Catechism is such an amazing, sweet uh, refreshment for the believer to remember. You want to have a good conscience, a conscience that works well? Let this truth drill into your heart. Verse 7 and 8, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. When you live by that principle, do whatever your conscience tells you, informed by Scripture. We can have disagreements when we operate from that principle and still not assume that the other is going to hell, that the other is playing in the, in the devil's agenda. It's so easy for us when we, when we have disagreements to demonize the other we disagree with, to assume the worst about the other. How to train your conscience? Live with this principle that both in life and in death we belong to the Lord. Point number four, how to, tr how to train your conscience? <laughs> Remember, we will all give an account to God. We will all give an account to God before his judgment seat. Verse 10 through 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you, do you despise your brother? We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And number five, how to train your conscience? We must not act against our conscience. We must not act against our conscience. This comes from verse 22. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Don't act against your conscience. If you do, it leads to a process of self-destruction because acting against our conscience causes us to numb our conscience. Those sharp edges of the conscience begin to get dull. Those sharp cuts no longer cut as they are supposed to, and they just become smooth stones that no longer bother us. And that is the way towards self-destruction. Richard Sibbs, the great preacher of the 18th century, gave a wonderful picture of the conscience. He described it as God's court within us. He said, to clear this further concerning the nature of conscience, know that God has set up in a man a court. And there is in man all that are in a court. And conscience does all the parts. It registers, it witnesses, it accuses, it judges, it executes, it does all. So don't act against this divinely given inner court. And when it does any of those steps, whether it registers or witnesses or judges or executes, don't ignore. Don't act against. Oh, friends, in light of this role that the conscience plays in us, it's indeed a great blessing when the conscience, assuming that it has been calibrated by the Word of God, does not pass judgment on us for what we have been convicted um, or what we've been convinced by Scripture. 
the blessing of a good conscience that does not accuse us in what we know to be right is that it also gives us sweetness of experience with the Lord. It gives us sweetness of experience the things that God gives us in himself and the things that God gives us in this world. Here's how one pastor put it beautifully. When the conscience is at peace, the soul is in good health. And so all things are enjoyed with sweetness and comfort. The conscience is God's echo of peace to the soul in life, in death, in judgment. It is unspeakable comfort. So brothers and sisters, I want to encourage us to walk our Christian lives with a trained conscience. Let it be trained by the Word of God. Let it be captivated by the Word of God. And I want to encourage us to consider not only for us to walk our individual lives with a trained conscience, but that to walk with each other, giving each other room to walk with their consciences and not to assume that we are the final arbiter uh, of truth for everyone. I pray that as we consider the role of conscience and we just barely scratch the surface on this theme, I pray that the Lord would help us grow in understanding how to use it so that out of that, our relationships can grow sweeter and sweeter. And together, we not only grow in unity, but we contribute to the building up of the body of Christ uh, through the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Father, you have given us an amazing gift in the role that you have given to conscience to play in us. Father, we confess that at times we have misunderstood this gift and we have misused it. And because of that, we have reaped a harvest of tensions, of griefs, of broken relationships. Father, help us to know how to calibrate our conscience, how to train it to your word so that out of that we may contribute to the building up of each other. We pray this in the name of Christ for his glory and honor. Amen.